History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 344th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we've got a fun one. This is something that we've been wanting to do for a while. We're going to be talking about haunted music. Excellent. Now, for those of you who are executive producers, we've done a couple of bonus episodes about different parts of music that could be considered haunted, weird, cursed, that kind of thing. So we've touched on the devil's cord with you guys. The unfortunate thing about doing a public show like this is that we can't afford to pay for copyrighted music to play it on here. So we're not going to be able to play you a bunch of examples of different pieces of music that we're going to talk about. But I encourage you to Google them later. And if you are an executive producer, please listen back to the bonus cast on the devil's cord. Some of it we will be covering here again, but you'll get to hear the different music that we're talking about. Definitely. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Denise and Jeannie. Welcome to the crew, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Darren Koch. We're women, so we certainly are not experts in urinals or their usage. We don't know if it's typical for men to use them as a social gathering point. We're pretty sure, though, that they've only been used to turn the tide on an enemy during war once. The French came up with a creative idea to share military intel among themselves. In the 1830s, France installed open-air urinals so that men would be able to relieve themselves easily without resorting to peeing on buildings or the street. Come on, guys. We know you've all done this at some point. These urinals were used to pass information for the French resistance during World War II. There were more than a thousand of these open-air urinals in Paris during the war, and once the Nazis occupied the city, the Allies and the French resistance would pass notes to each other away from the Nazis' eyes. So these urinals are credited with helping to defeat the Nazi regime. And that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of July, on the 20th in 1964, musician, singer, and songwriter Chris Cornell was born. Cornell got into music from a young age, learning to play the piano, guitar, and a snare drum. He also, unfortunately, got into drugs as a teenager. In 1984, he helped found the band Soundgarden. They found early success and quickly signed to an independent label and later moved on to a major record label. Cornell had a unique style and sound, and this would become what we know as grunge music. Soundgarden would be the first grunge band to be signed by a major record label. 
Cornell had an amazing vocal range and not only had success with Soundgarden, but his next band, Audio Slave. He was nominated for 16 Grammy Awards and sold over 30 million records worldwide. Rolling Stone named him on their Best Lead Singers of All Time list. Cornell battled with substance abuse for part of his life, but managed to get sober and help other artists to get clean as well. He had issues with anxiety and depression since he'd been a kid, and he would continue battling that until his death. He died on May 18, 2017, but the circumstances of his death are questionable. The cause of death was officially suicide by hanging, and several prescription drugs were found in his system, but in therapeutic doses. His wife had talked to him right before he died, and she said he'd been slurring his words, and told her he thought he took one too many sleeping pills. She became concerned and called security. Cornell had indicated to no one that he was suicidal, and he was in a great place in his life. He was buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery in a nice place by the pond, front and center of the main drag. Kelly and I both got to visit that grave in 2018. We've covered quite a few music-related topics on the podcast. HGB has featured Ernestine and Hazel's Jute Joint, Bobby Mackey's Music World, and the Cincinnati Music Hall. And we've talked about the life and afterlife of Patsy Cline, John Lennon, and Elvis Presley. Bonus episodes have featured Haunted Instruments, Graham Parsons, and The Devil's Chord. We thought it would be interesting to do an episode on haunted music as a whole. This obviously won't be exhaustive, but we are going to delve into haunted radio stations, recording studios, buses, and jukeboxes. We'll also look at the elements of music that lead to hauntings and curses. And wow, does music have some curses. So Kelly, do you have a particular genre of music that's your favorite? Gosh, I'm, I'm kind of all across the board, honestly. I'm exactly the same way. I'm better off telling you what kind of music I don't like than music I do like. <laughs> sure. <laughs> kind of depends on my mood. Am I in a country mood today? Do I want to listen to some big band for some nostalgia? I'm a big fan of the 50s and the 60s. So do I want to do a little bit of that? Definitely. Jazz? I mean anything for me, really. And then I'll even get into the hip hop that is on now and different groups that are a little bit more popular today. And I've listened to it all. We talked about Chris Cornell in the history segment. Soundgarden was one of my favorite bands out there. Absolutely. So I definitely listened to some grunge and Nirvana. I was very much into grunge the later years of my high school. I love rock, whether it's classic or big hair bands in the 80s. <laughs> So yeah, I pretty much everything. The only thing I really don't care for is there's some rap I don't like to listen to, especially the messaging that's in it. And anything that's like thrash metal, that's a little too much for me. Yeah, death metal is a little too much. Yeah, <laughs> I like metal, but not if it's like, I really can't understand what the guy's saying. And it's really pounding. It just gives me a headache. It's because we're getting old. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> Music has been with humanity since the first beings probably figured out that two rocks hit together made a sound. And that's about the extent of music I can play, Kelly. Oh, come on now. <laughs> I, I highly doubt that. I actually owned a guitar for a little while in my life, but I never really learned to play much on it. I'm sure you know at least the A chord. 
Yeah, and I think I and played the G chord. G chord. Yep. I was just about to say, I think I got the G chord too. And probably even before that, the pleasant strains of a bird chirping and singing were heard. Music has great power. A few strains from a song can transport us to another time, a moment in memory. Certain types of music can cause us to feel sad or exhilarated. Some music is relaxing, while other pieces can be downright unnerving. We obviously are going to focus on the latter. But before there were birds and before there were humans, there were angels, at least for some belief systems. These angels could sing and maybe even played instruments. There was one angel in particular that was the most beautiful, both in appearance and sound, and that was Lucifer. Many people probably are familiar with him being described as beautiful, but did you know that he was basically a musical instrument all on his own? The Bible says of Lucifer in Ezekiel 28:13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings, timbrels, and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. In the Hebrew, tof is the word for settings, which also means timbrel, and that is a musical instrument. The Hebrew word for sockets is negeb, and that means hole or pipes. Isaiah 14.11 says, All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. So again, we have a reference to Lucifer being musical. Most biblical scholars refer to him as the director of music in heaven. Yeah, so Kelly, a lot of times when people picture an angel, they just see this being in a white robe with these big white wings behind them. And I obviously, my belief system, I believe that there's different ranks of angels, and so they have different appearances. So Lucifer, I don't know exactly what he looked like. I don't know if these settings were on his clothing, like a garment that he wore. But to me, it sounds like they were part of his body. It does sound that way. And then the way that the pipes are positioned on him, I also believe those were part of his body. The Catholics got it so that he looks like a fork-tongued with this long tail and horns and he's red, kind of devilish creature. But I don't think that that's what he looks like. He must have a very unique look to him. Sounds that way, definitely. As most people are familiar with the story, Lucifer rebels with a third of the heavenly angels and they are cast down here to earth with the humans. For those of us who study what is referenced as fringe Christianity, I talk about that a lot here. And for me personally, I believe it's what true Christianity is, but it's considered fringe because you are not going to hear this kind of stuff in your mainstream churches. This is the time when humans are going to make some big advances in technology. For us, this is when the fallen angels teach humans about makeup, blacksmithing, building, music, and much more. While Ancient Aliens on TV presents the helpers in building megaliths and pyramids as aliens, we think of them as fallen angels. Although the movie Footloose doesn't present the evils of music coming from this, we believe that is why music ended up with a negative connotation. You know the whole rock and roll music is of the devil? No one knows what music is like in heaven, but Lucifer got his talent and experience somewhere, which is why music as a whole is not of the devil. But could there be some music that is of a more negative nature? Well, of course there is, because there's no light without the dark. 
And as a side note, irregardless of what the church has taught for years, there's no consensus on whether Lucifer is Satan or the devil, and also that fallen angels are demons. These could all be constructs from the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible itself is quite unclear about any of these elements. So if you ask a lot of biblical scholars, is Lucifer the devil? You're going to get different answers based on where their personal beliefs are, because you actually literally don't have anything in the Bible that you could say this shows specifically this is it. spells it out. Exactly. Yeah. We've all heard the tales of the musician selling his soul at the crossroads in exchange for musical talent. We'll look at this in a bit. But first, let's look at a brief history of music. We think everybody would be in agreement that drums and drumming is probably the most ancient of musical sounds, other than the voice. Nearly every indigenous culture on every continent that has humans, drums. And there's probably good reason, because drums are like the beating of the heart. And you don't have to be able to carry a tune to sound good with drums. Which is so good for me, because I cannot carry <laughs> are you meant a tune. To be a drummer? <laughs> you do just fine. Egyptians are credited with lots of firsts, and many believe that they were the first to design instruments. In 4000 BC, they started using flutes and harps, and moved on to more complicated instruments like clarinets. An early form of the trumpet would be introduced in 2500 BC by Denmark. One of the first stringed instruments was created by the Hittites in 1500 BC, and a few hundred years later, King David comes on the scene, and he was incredibly musical. The Bible describes him singing and dancing and playing the harp. During one such harp recital, King Saul tried to kill David. The Hebrews used music during daily life in Israel. Yeah, if I remember the story with King Saul and David, this is when he starts to get to the point where he doesn't like David anymore. He had at first taken him under his wing. Right. Well, some I think the Bible even describes that Satan jumped into Saul and made him want to kill David. And so he literally throws a spear at him while David's playing a harp. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that's nice. He didn't like the chord. Maybe there was something that just kind of twanged the wrong way. <laughs> Gosh. The Greeks would move music forward even more, developing classical music in 700 BC. The teaching of music was a requirement in the schools, and it would be the mathematician Pythagoras who would develop the octave scale when he treated music as a science. And this is a key element to focus on when it comes to talking about the paranormal connection to music. Can music be used as a form of alchemy? You know, we always look on the surface about music and just think of it as these notes and everything, but the chords are a scale. It's got math involved in it. And alchemy, I would think, is the same way because it's a chemical thing. Yeah. So they're all sense. science in some way or form. We'll discuss this further when we get to the Renaissance. Music was so popular in Greece that they regularly held musical competitions. Aristotle and Plato both believed that music was a wonderful leisurely pursuit that made students better learners. They believed it gave the soul freedom. But Aristotle also had interesting thoughts on the effects of music. Aristotle warned that certain modes of music shouldn't be studied because they stirred unhealthy emotions. I found that fascinating when I started researching the history of music and I went into, well, what did Aristotle think of music? I was like, whoa, that's yeah, weird. Yeah, I never heard that. I mean, I do know that there are types of music that can make you depressed. And I've even heard that death music makes people want to kill themselves. So I don't know if that's what Aristotle was picking up on. Possibly. I mean, look at how they do the score for movies. Yeah. You you definitely get more intense feelings during certain parts based upon what mm -hmm. music is playing in the background. He wrote in his work, The Politics, rhythm and melody supply imitations of anger and gentleness, and also of courage and temperance, and of all the qualities contrary to these, and of the other qualities of character, which hardly fall short of the actual affections 
as we know from our own experience. For in listening to such strains, our souls undergo a change. The habit of feeling pleasure or pain at mere representations is not far removed from the same feeling about realities. Bothius was a Roman senator and philosopher, and he translated the works of Plato and Aristotle into Latin and brought the Greek musical notation to Western Europe. He also wrote about the idea of opera. The common era would see music moving forward at a rapid pace and could be broken down into eight eras. The first is medieval, and this was from 500 AD to 1400 AD. During this time, Guido de Rezzo invented solfege, which is the vocal scale we were taught by the sound of music. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. I'm glad you got it because you can actually carry a tune. No, not really. <laughs> now I'm going, do, a deer, a, a female deer, ray, a f- drop of golden sun. No, I can't even remember. Okay, everybody words. sing with us and no. we don't have to worry about what we sound like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> also during this time, music moved away from the influence of the church, like Gregorian chanting, and became more folk-like, and the church started looking at this music as pagan. It was like, if it's not a hymn, then it's pagan, is kind of the way they were looking at it. Yep. Black or white, I suppose. Exactly. So you've got these different cultures that are adopting certain kinds of music and probably telling stories of their origins and such. And all of a sudden, this becomes pagan rather than just interesting folk music. Next was the Renaissance era from 1400 AD to 1600 AD. Renaissance means rebirth. And it was as though music was being reborn, separate from the church. And music became more complicated with more moving parts. This found its footing in Northern Europe in the future France, Belgium, and Netherlands. Germany wrote a lot of organ pieces during this time. Music became more tonal. At this time, many alchemists started mixing music in with their alchemy. Michael Mayer was a German physician and alchemist who wrote the 1617 hermetical book Atalanta Fugians, and in it he described 50 fugues, which are canonical, with multiple voices on a theme that appears at the beginning of a composition and repeat several times throughout. This symbolized the Philosopher's Stone, which was a legendary substance that could be used to turn base metals into gold and silver. Next would come the Baroque era from 1580 AD to 1750 AD, and the first operas were written at this time. Composers like Vivaldi, Bach, and Handel would come onto the scene. The oboe, violin, and double bass would appear. Baroque is derived from the Italian word barocco, which means bizarre, and this was a time of experimentation. Melodies would be supported by harmony. The Gallant era would be from 1720 AD to 1780 AD and continue into the classical era that ended in 1820 AD. Sonatas would start at this time, and music would get less complicated with the piano being the preferred instrument. Mozart wrote his first symphony at this time, and Beethoven and Schubert would take music into the next era. The Romantic era would fall between 1800 AD and 1910 AD, This music would tell a story, and composers during this time would be Johann Strauss II, Brahms, Wagner, and Tchaikovsky. Literature and art were mixed with the music as well. The saxophone and flute would become more complicated. Nationalistic themes were developed, and music started telling more stories. The modern era would start in 1890 AD and go through to 1980 AD. The postmodern would start in 1930 AD and continue to the present. With so many years, this covers a vast array of music, from neoclassical to concert music, to impressionistic, to electronic music, to jazz, and really everything we know past classical. An interesting instrument introduced during this time was the theremin. 
Have you ever I heard love that? the theremin. Yes, it's so cool. What I will do is see if I can find a piece out there somewhere where somebody's just kind of playing it. It's not something that's copyrighted so people can hear it. But it is fascinating to watch. It's like you're moving your hands in air and yeah, it's playing. Exactly. Have you gotten to play one? I have not, although I have seen them played. Wow. So I didn't get to myself, but yeah, they're they're very interesting. Speaking of instruments, how many different instruments have you played in your life? I don't know. Acoustic guitar, clarinet, keyboard slash organ, viola, saxophone, tenor saxophone. I think that's it. I've tried to play the drums. I've tried to play the guitar. I've tried to play the piano. I can play Perry diddles on drums. That's about it. Okay. <laughs> My sister, uh, her husband, so my brother-in-law, is a fantastic drummer. And he plays the guitar, too. He could actually be his own band. (laughs) One-man band. We mentioned that the music that broke away from the church centuries ago was labeled as pagan. This was during the Middle Ages or medieval times. The Devil's Interval, or Devil's Chord, was introduced at this time, and it was considered so diabolical that it was banned by the church. The Devil's Chord was not harmonious like the other music of the time. Harmony has notes that flow together and share pitches and frequencies. There is a set timing to the harmony, like a waltz is 3-4 time and a march is 2-4 time, and etc. The devil's interval is formally called the tritone. This is the augmented fourth and the diminished fifth. According to Carl E. Gardner's 1912 text, Essentials of Music Theory, a triad in music is composed of three tones. These tones are a starting note plus the third and fifth tones found along its scale like C and then E and G. Most chords are independent, but a tritone is dependent and has dissonant or tense intervals. There is something about a dissonant chord that is disturbing to our spirits. If a composition ends with a tritone, it is uncomfortable. And in a singing composition, it is nearly impossible for any singer, regardless of talent, to sing. Thus, any piece of music with the devil's interval is thought to be creepy and chilling. Because of all this, the church banned it and called it Diabolus in Musica. John Sloboda, professor of music psychology at London's Guildhall Music of Music and Drama, was interviewed on NPR in 2012, and he explained how it is that the devil's interval is disturbing, saying, Our brains are wired to pick up on the music that we expect, and generally music is consonant rather than dissonant, so we expect a nice chord. So when that chord is not quite what we expect, it gives you a little bit of an emotional frisson because it's strange and unexpected. Many composers have used the devil's chord throughout history. Wagner's opera, Tristan und Isolde, has the tritone in its prelude. For this reason, it is sometimes called the Tristan chord. This incorporates the notes F, B, D-sharp, and G-sharp. Wagner's Rang also has the chord, and some terrifying imagery, which will also become a part of performances of the Devil's Interval. In this opera, there's a scene that has drums and timpani, and feels evil with a scene playing out, what seems to be a black mass. Beethoven has it in his Piano Sonata, number 18, and Fidelio. Michael Tippett's Second Symphony features the tritone prominently. Camille St. Saint's Danse Macabre has a salute to the dead coming alive at Halloween and first performed in 1875.
Hungarian composer Franz Litz used the tritone scale and images of devils playing violins and dancing in his Mephisto waltzes. So we encourage you guys to try to check out any of those. Uh, Wagner's opera, Tristan on Isolde, listen to the beginning of it. When you listen to that, the feeling that you get from that is the devil's chord. It's, that's what it's doing to you, making you feel like something just doesn't sound right. And I love that we have this professor saying, you expect music to sound like this. So when it does something that it shouldn't sound like, that's why all of a sudden you're like, Ugh, almost like nails on a chalkboard. And then there was Giuseppe Tartini's The Devil's Trill Sonata. Most violinists claim that this is the most difficult violin piece in the world. Tartini himself claimed that the devil had written it, and that it was through a dream that it was delivered to him. The devil was playing it on a violin in a ferocious, mad way. What Tartini put to paper, he said, was but a shadow of what he had seen in his dream. And yes, I'm having visions of the devil went down to Georgia. R.I.P. Charlie. Give the devil hell. There are different claims about when it was written. We both saw 1713 and 1740. The most formal name of the piece is Violin Sonata in G Minor. About a quarter hour in length, the sonata begins in a reflective mood, with gently flowing violin lines over harpsichord accompaniment. Some performances replace the harpsichord with a modern piano. Frequent double stops, requiring the violinist to play simultaneously on two adjacent strings, increase the technical challenges, even before the tempo quickens. After this languid introduction, the sonata charges forward with the violinist offering ever-new versions of an earlier melodic fragment. Some variations are more overtly challenging than others, particularly those near the end of the piece, which are now replete with not just double stops, but also trills, runs, and quick alternation of pitches high and low. This brings us to jazz, which was some of the first music in our modern era to be deemed of the devil. Jasmine used the devil's chord throughout the 40s and 50s and even had a hand signal to pay homage to what they called the flattened fifth. This was a high five, but with the thumb folded into the palm and the musician would call out, Olya Kuman. When singing the tritone, jazz performers would sing with a false chord technique that came off as just a sound like a scream or a growl. Metal singers do the same today. In our modern era, one can hear it in Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, Black Sabbath's songs, Rush's YYZ, the song Maria in West Side Story, Busta Rhymes' Woo-Ha, Got Y'all in Check, The Simpsons' theme song, and death metal music, so they all have that tritone in them. So when you listen to Jimi Hendrix at the very beginning, that Purple Haze, that is a tritone that he's playing at the beginning there. The Devil's Chord is not the only way that music has been made disturbing. Poland would introduce a type of music referred to as sonorism. This started in the 1950s and featured the use of traditional and non-traditional instruments to make eerie and disturbing sounds. We imagine this is how much of the foley for horror movies is produced today. There is no rhythm and no melody. One of the most famous composers to use sonorism was Krzysztof Penderecki, and his most famous piece of this sort was Thronati to the Victims of Hiroshima. This piece has influenced a far amount of music we hear in horror movies, including Children of Men, There Will Be Blood, Under the Skin, Shutter Island, and The Shining. In his later years, Penderecki focused on the tritone or the devil's chord. He just passed away in March of 2020. He had said of his music in an interview with Resident Advisor, For some pieces, like Thronati, I prefer young people to perform it, because they are still open to learn. This piece, even though it was written over 50 years ago, is still very fresh and new. Some notation that I invented at that time is now common. 
but there are still some special techniques. Different types of vibrato, playing on the tailpiece of the bridge, and playing directly behind the bridge. These things are unusual, even after 50 years. So if you get a chance to listen to that piece, it is very disturbing, I would say. And for anybody who knows the music of The Shining, you can definitely hear the influence from this piece in that. Hungary has had some interesting music come out of it, starting with Hungarian composer Georgi Ligeti. He created a piece for solo organ that is chaotic and disturbing called Volumina that caused an uproar. The first thing the listener hears is the performer's forearms across the keys. You remember I played this for you, Kelly? I do. It just sounds like somebody has laid down their arms on the keyboard. And it's just that... And on the lower octaves, yeah. Yes. This is a long piece, and the first attempt at recording it caught the organ on fire. Can you imagine? Oh, my word. People started saying that Ligeti was the destroyer of organs. Another Hungarian piece of music with a notorious reputation was blamed for causing people to commit suicide. This was Gloomy Sunday, written by Hungarian pianist and composer Rezo Sares, and is nicknamed the Hungarian Suicide Song. It was written in 1933. The original lyrics were written as if the world was ending and reflected the despair about war and people's sins. Poet Laszlo Javor wrote his own lyrics to the song titled Le Zomoru Vazaranap, or Sad Sunday. The protagonist wants to commit suicide because his lover has died. More people remember those lyrics. Gloomy Sunday was first recorded in English by Hal Kemp in 1936 with lyrics by Sam M. Lewis. Billie Holiday performed it in 1941, making it incredibly popular. And for those of you who are fans of Billie Holiday, I'm positive you've heard this. Urban legends began claiming that people were killing themselves after hearing the song. Radio networks began banning the song. I'm going to go ahead and share the lyrics with you here now, but I'm not going to sing it. Oh, come on. (laughs) Take one for the team. (laughs) Sunday is gloomy. My hours are slumberless. Dearest, the shadows I live with are numberless. Little white flowers will never awaken you, not where the black coach of sorrow has taken you. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. Would they be angry if I thought of joining you? Gloomy Sunday. Gloomy is Sunday, with shadows I spend it all. My heart and I have decided to end it all. Soon there'll be candles and prayers that are said I know. Let them not weep. Let them know that I'm glad to go. Death is no dream, for in death I'm caressing you. With the last breath of my soul, I'll be blessing you. Gloomy Sunday. We've all heard the theory that one can sell their soul to the devil in exchange for becoming proficient with a talent or gaining money or fame. There are many tales of musicians meeting the devil at the crossroads and selling their souls to gain musical genius. This is the legend behind Delta bluesman Robert Johnson, who seemed to know very little about playing the guitar. That doesn't make sense considering that music historians refer to him as the grandfather of rock and roll. Johnson was a black man who was born in Mississippi around 1911 with little opportunities. He wanted desperately to be a guitar player in the juke joints and get the women to flock to him, but he couldn't play and no matter how many guitar pickers he pestered to teach him, he was not musically inclined. He left town for a year and when he came back, he was a better guitar player than anyone around and many rockers credit Robert Johnson as an influence. Rumors started flying that Johnson had sold his soul to the devil to gain his talent. Johnson would practice late at night in the cemeteries and then play mind-blowing riffs in the juke joints. So you can imagine there was this guy who would come in and he couldn't carry a tune on that guitar for anything. And there was a couple of bluesmen who would try to help him, I think just because he kept pestering them to help him. And they were just like, there's no help in this guy. He just can't get it. And then he goes away and comes back and is playing better than anybody had ever played. 
I mean, that's a lot of practice. He had a patient teacher. (laughs) I've never thought of Satan as patient, but maybe. Oh, stop. (laughs) Johnson embraced the rumors that he had met the devil and included the narrative in a song. He sang about Satan in six of his songs. Kind of unusual. I don't know that we'd hear that from too many other than maybe groups that they're more goth kind of groups. Sure. But for somebody who's just singing the blues, it's kind of weird that you'd have Satan in six of your songs. One of his songs was titled Hellhound on My Trail, and in it he claimed that an evil spirit was following. Something did indeed catch up with him, and he either drank himself to death or was poisoned with strychnine by a jealous man in 1938. He was 27 at the time and would be the first to start a legend about a special club for musicians known as the 27 Club. I'm sure you've heard of that, Kelly. Absolutely. We'll talk about this club a little later, but we wanted to touch on another virtuoso whom people felt had sold his soul to the devil for his talent, too. This was violin virtuoso Niccolo Paganini. Paganini came from a poor family, and none of them were musicians. People claim that Paganini seemed to almost overnight become an expert on the violin. Even more stunning to listeners than just the music he conjured, it was the way in which he played, like he was possessed. He writhed and flailed about, breaking strings as he violently played his violin. People claimed he sold his soul for his talent and that when he played, he was possessed by the devil. And yes, the violin and fiddle definitely seemed to be a theme with Satan here. The 27 Club is an exclusive rock and roll club that no one actually wants to be a member of for the simple reason that it means you are dead at the age of 27. Clearly, rock stars have died at a number of ages, and we could compile enough in each category to have a club for each. But what makes this club unique is the level of talent included within it. Robert Johnson is considered the first, and the last, as of the production of this podcast, would be Amy Winehouse. Brian Jones was a founding member of the Rolling Stones and died from drowning in his pool while under the influence of drugs and alcohol in 1969. Alan Blind Owl Wilson was a member of Canned Heat and died of a drug overdose in 1970. Jimi Hendrix choked on his own vomit after overdosing in 1970. Janis Joplin also died that year from an overdose on heroin that was bad. The same drug took Jim Morrison in 1971. Founding member of the Grateful Dead, Ron McKernan, died in 1973 from internal bleeding due to cirrhosis caused by his heavy drinking. Kurt Cobain died in 1994 after shooting himself with a shotgun. Maybe. And then Amy Winehouse overdosed in 2011. Was this some kind of curse that felled these 27-year-old musicians? Clearly they lived hard and fast, but had they made a deal with the devil? We think this is mostly confirmation bias. If there is a curse related to a rocker, it would probably be whatever curse is keeping Keith Richards alive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the only place I know there's got to be some kind of curse keeping that guy alive. And as I wrote that little part about Kurt Cobain, I'm one of those people that's not quite sure that he actually shot himself with that shotgun. I agree. It is pretty hard to commit suicide with a full-on shotgun. If it was cut down, maybe. But uh, I'm not convinced that he took his own life. I'm thinking somebody may have helped him to take his life. Yeah, I think so. why don't we talk a little bit about some haunted jukeboxes? I'm game. I love jukeboxes. (laughs) Me too. Paul Seaburn wrote an article on the Mysterious Universe website about a haunted jukebox. 
This was a 1954 Seberg Model HF100R owned by Richard Loban. Loban restored the jukebox, replacing a stripper plate, and he added a collection of his own 45s. For you youngins, if you don't know what those are, I <laughs> encourage you to look them up. Yes, definitely. In slot G5, he placed the song, If You Leave Me Tonight, I Will Cry. Strangely, the jukebox started playing the song in G5 all by itself. Loban replaced some old parts that he thought were causing the problem, but the jukebox kept playing G5. The former owner told Loban that he thought the jukebox had been a prop in an episode of Night Gallery. In this episode, a character pushes a button and the song, If You Leave Me Tonight, I Will Cry, plays. Only the character didn't select that song. No matter what button he pushes, that song plays. The camera finally zooms in for one last song and the character pushes the G5 button. Was this the jukebox from the television show? Whether it was or not, that's a really bizarre story and the jukebox does seem to have something paranormal going on. So unless that show that had it as a prop rigged it that way and the guy didn't realize it was rigged that way and couldn't fix it, it certainly is odd. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the jukebox at Bobby Mackey's is reputedly haunted and seems to attract spirits. These include a ghost dog, a ghost without a head, and a filmy white apparition. The jukebox turns on by itself. A police officer responded to a security issue and found the jukebox on when he entered the empty building. The staff claimed that everything was off when they left. The craziest stories include claims that the jukebox plays even when unplugged, and one staff member claims that the jukebox played without being plugged in, without a record on the spindle, and the song playing was not on any record in the jukebox. Now that is weird. <laughs> that certainly is odd. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing for it to just, you know, start playing some song on its own. That's off the charts. <laughs> unplugged, even weirder, but maybe there's some kind of a weird surge on the inside. But when there's no record that's playing and the song that's playing isn't even a part of the jukebox. Right. Okay, where's that coming from? And is it possible, could that be a residual type haunting? Could a song that had been in it that got played a lot play? Certainly seems like it could be. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Another scientific thing that would be interesting to study in the paranormal. We'd probably never be able to figure it out. Inquiring Minds. We have a haunted tour bus. Country musician Whisperin' Bill Anderson claims that he and his band toured for 12 days aboard a haunted tour bus. In the back of the bus was the stateroom, and almost from the moment the band set off on their tour, they started hearing moaning coming from that stateroom. And it was a painful kind of moaning. Not the other say, what kind of moaning was it? <laughs> they believed that somebody had died or something in the back of that bus. And that's why they were hearing these sounds. I wouldn't want to sleep in there, I don't think. <laughs> no, and I mean, it makes me wonder how many haunted tour buses could be out there for some of these musicians, because there's a lot of them that have some pretty devastating wrecks. So Def Leppard, I remember when we were growing up, they had a wreck and the drummer lost his arm. Yeah, I would imagine that there would be a variety out there with, with different hauntings or Yeah, and Gloria Stefan had a really horrible bus crash, and she That's broke right. her back and everything. That's in that. right. How about some haunted radio stations? Well, alrighty then. Radio stations have powerful transmitters. There was a time when getting a disc jockey to play your record could launch you into stardom. Is this why so many former and current radio stations are reputed to be haunted? The Wolf is a country station that broadcasts out of Tallahassee, Florida on 103.1 FM. A DJ there named Big Moose had a startling experience. He was alone one morning prepping the traffic report when he heard the voice of a little girl say, Can you hear me? He thought perhaps that it was a bleed through from another station, but the voice was really clear. And then he heard it ask again, can you hear me? 
He shrugged it off until it happened again the next day at the same time. And then it happened again the next day. He had been experiencing doors opening and closing on their own before this, so he started to believe that the station was haunted. Then the station caught a weird orb zooming around the station on security cameras. So what could be behind this? Big Moose did some research and found out that a home had been on the spot where the radio station was now located. A brother and sister had been jumping on a bed on the second floor when the little girl was bounced out an open window, and she fell headfirst to the ground. Could this be the little girl wondering if she can be heard? Jennifer Waits wrote about her radio station in 2014 on the Radio Survivor website. Luckily, I don't get the sense that the station I call home, KFJCFM, is permanently haunted. However, there was one night when I wasn't so sure. I was sitting in the KFJC lobby one evening when the front doorknob started rattling for no reason. I have no idea if it was a ghost, but it happened soon after one of our DJs died tragically. So I assume that it was him, Ken Spiderman Hamilton, making his presence known. Tim King wrote in 2012 for SalemNews.com, and it all began at that radio station, when I came in early to bring the AM signal up for the day. This powering up of the station was done in a narrow room in front of the DJ booth. We called this the rack room, and that is a term often used in both radio and television stations. Racks hold all the broadcast equipment. Each morning when I arrived at the station, I always felt a little uneasy and better after reaching my office and turning the lights on. All night after they closed up at midnight, the place sat in total darkness. The first thing in the rack room was turning on the plates, so they could warm up 15 minutes prior to starting the actual transmitter. Then a couple more switches. Information entered in the legal documents on a clipboard, and the main switches activated, bringing the station to life. But it was always during that 15 minutes that strange things happened. It started with the uncomfortable feeling. It was always cold, hard to pin that on anything but living in Oregon during the colder months, I suppose, but there were sometimes more goosebumps than usual. I felt like I was sharing space with someone and that neither of us liked the other very much. There was never anybody else around during these hours of the day. I think now that the spirit, if that's what it was, and I had a very similar agenda. We both wished the other was long gone. As I activated those switches in the rack area, or waited the last minutes before doing so, I would often see what I would describe as fleeting images in my peripheral vision. I would turn my head, but there was never anything there. But there was something there, and I would have this happen every day. I became used to it eventually, and I only discussed it with my wife. It caused no fear, and over time, caught my interest. It seems like a lot of people, when they see something, it's always in their peripheral, out of the corner of their eye. Yep. Meximo70 wrote on the website, Hot Dish Hell, When I worked at local radio station KFMT, I started out on the 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. shift. Holy crow, that's a long shift. That is. We were the only radio station around doing 24-hour live radio. The rest was automated. If you called me at 2 a.m. wanting to hear Britney Spears, by God, I'd get her oopsin' for you at 2 a.m. <laughs> when you were... Okay. <laughs> that sounded wrong, too. <laughs> I, I suppose it did. <laughs> when you work after 5 p.m. at the station, you're the only one there. The door gets locked, and in order for anyone to get in, if they don't have a key, is to press the doorbell, which would set off a strobe light in my studio, and I'd come with the handy-dandy studio key and let you in, if I liked you. The FM studio's control board faced a window looking out to a sheep pasture. At night, you could see your reflection and everything behind you. Oh, that would be kind of freaky. Who's standing behind you? I know, but I mean, because I know exactly what he's describing. Yeah. You just be looking out a dark window and you're just seeing yourself like yeah. as if you're sitting in the field. Exactly. 
Your back was to the door, which is a little unnerving when you're at an empty studio by yourself in the middle of a sheep pasture. One night, while I just put on the song of the second set, I heard rustling paper behind me, and then I felt a cold breeze go by me. I always kept the studio door open since there wasn't anyone else in the building. The strobe wasn't going off, so I thought maybe the owner came in a different way and was doing some late-night work. It was 1 a.m. I walked around the entire radio station, knocked on Charles Woody's office door, and looked out in the parking lot. I was alone. So I went back into the studio, did a commercial break, and went back into the music set again. I went into the production studio and updated the weather report, which would play on our sister station, KSOM Country. Well, that's weird. So now I did get the country thing right. You sure did. While I was in there, I heard a small knock on the production studio door. I believe at that point I shouted out an expletive. I ran for the FM studio, closed the door, and because of security reasons, the door does not lock. So I propped my stool against the knob. About an hour later, after I had announced upcoming events and went into a commercial break, I looked up and I saw a shadowy figure walk past the studio door window. I heard the papers rustling, too. At 4.30 a.m., morning show host Dark Cigar came in to start his prep. That's a heck of a name. <laughs> it sure is. When he came into the studio, he asked how things were. I asked him, can I ask you something without you thinking I'm freaking crazy? Sure, he said, not really sure if that was the right answer. Anyone ever, I don't know, witness anything strange around here? Oh, you mean the ghost. What? This place is supposedly haunted. Some DJ here, I guess, killed himself and supposedly walks around and reveals himself to certain people. I've never seen him, but plenty of others have. Apparently this guy did. (laughs) Sounds that way. How about some haunted recording studios to wrap this up, Kelly? Sounds good to me. As music moved out of the 1980s, glam rock faded into a shabby look incorporating flannel shirts and roughed up jeans that came to be known as grunge. My favorite. (laughs) (laughs) One of the pioneers of this music was Robert Lang. Lang set up a studio in Seattle in 1974, and many groups have recorded in the mansion that seems to jut out from the hillside overlooking the city. Nirvana produced their final album here. Before the grunge groups recorded here, the blues men partied and recorded at the Robert Lang Studios, and somewhere along the line, the studios became a home for a specter. The official website for the studios features a picture of the bassist from the group Drown Mary inside a sound booth with a misty white mask beside him. Robert Lang claims that this is a ghost that he calls Dubby. Dubby was Lang's friend whose real name was Walter Wesley Leonard, who died after drinking too much and choking on his own vomit. Dubby had stashed a bunch of cash in a plastic barrel and buried it on the property where the studios were going to be built. Lang had no idea where the money was. But as they dug out the ground to build the studio, he found it, and it was a lot of money that was poured into the construction. And that's why he thinks Dubby is here in the afterlife. Music groups claim to experience cold chills, doors open and close on their own, and recording equipment goes on the fritz. The band Afghan Wigs had an issue with the tape recorder, and they also watched as the lights flickered many times in what they described as a violent way. A member of the band called in a psychic friend, and she encouraged them to work with the spirit so that it would allow them to finish their recording session. She burned some sage, and they got the recording done without further issues. Chris Cornell was our subject for the This Month in History segment. One of the bands he performed with was Audio Slave, and one of the studios they recorded at was Rick Rubin's Mansion in Laurel Canyon. Now, Laurel Canyon just seems to be haunted like hell. I've heard so many stories out of that place. Very true. So it isn't surprising to hear that this place is said to be haunted. The reputation of this haunting had the drummer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Chad Smith, so fearful that he would not stay overnight at the studio. Everybody else did, but he would ride his motorcycle in each morning. He was like, I'm not staying. The spirit is said to have been caught in photos taken for artwork for the group's Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic album. 
This was an orb with a face in it. The band Slipknot also experienced the ghost via several weird experiences. Drummer Joey Jordanson claimed that he felt a spirit walk through him. Not by him, through him. Kelly, it's one thing to get touched by a <laughs> ghost. I don't think I'd want it to go through me. No. Who could this spirit be? Before this was a recording studio, it was a wealthy family's mansion, and the spoiled son of the owner is said to have pushed his lover from a balcony, killing her. This former mansion burned to the ground, and then the current mansion was built. Many bands believe this studio has more than one ghost hanging around, so we don't know if it's just this guy's lover that he'd push from the balcony, or are there other people that are here? Lots of experiences. The former RCA studios in Nashville are said to harbor the ghost of the king himself. Anytime someone would mention the name Elvis in the building, things would go haywire. Lights would act weird and strange noises would be heard. Some of those noises would be caught in the recordings and could only be heard during playback. Elvis recorded some of his hits here, and that is why people think it's his spirit that visits. But there have been lots of greats who recorded here that might want to return to a place of their creative greatness. Music speaks to our very souls. It can bring back a tender memory or turn our calm countenance to anger. Music can push us to do that one more rep or inspire us to dance. Could there be something else within the strains of peculiar notes? Something disturbing? Something haunting? Are these curses real? Could these locations be haunted? That That is is for you you to decide. decide. Well, Kelly, I really enjoyed that. I I hope everybody else did too. I have two books written by Matt Swain. One is Haunted Rock and Roll. The other is Ghosts of Country Music, where I got several of these stories from. I encourage you to check those out. And as a matter of fact, I believe Matt Swain joined me for one of the shows that we did on a university. I cannot remember which one, but he also wrote another book that I own that's Haunted Universities. So very Very cool. cool. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And in saying that, we are in July, which means that October is not that far away. So if you have some haunting tales that you want to share, usually these are a little bit more lengthy than the short ones that we usually read. Please send them to us and we will include those in our Halloween episode. We've already gotten a couple that I'm saving for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Please do. We love hearing listener stories. And October also means that we're going to have our Flash Fiction Contest, which we run every year. Indeed. So I'll be getting those rules and regulations up and uh, you guys can start sending those in. And usually for the anniversary show, that's what we do. We share the winners and the two runners up and that kind of thing. Kelly, we got a message over on the History Ghost Bump page from Tyrene. I hope I said that right. Hi, I listen to your podcast all the time and love it. I know you guys like the dousing rods and thought I would tell you what we did. I have friends that run the paranormal tours at Brushy Mountain State Pen. I believe Tammy's been there. I think you're right. And she said, I think she even has experienced something paranormal there. It's supposed to be haunted. All the spirits there know them well, and I've been several times. Anyway, we decided to play checkers with one of the ghosts named James. We asked him to point to the ones he wanted to move, and we moved for him. Needless to say, he won two games. I have videos of it. Just thought you might like to do something like that. That's interesting. I've never thought of using dousing rods to say, hey, where do you want us to move things or whatever? Sure. Yeah, it is interesting. And then we were also given another idea that I think I would like to try on one of our future ghost hunts. Yes. And another thing I've tried recently with the rods is blindfolding the person holding the rods and putting headphones playing music. Then we ask the questions and see the answers so it will show other people we are not manipulating the rods. 
like the Estes method used with spirit boxes. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. I don't know why we never thought of that because we really are big fans of the Estes method and wanted to try that. So why not try it with dousing rods? Absolutely. So basically you wouldn't ask the questions. We'd blindfold you Mm -hmm. and put headphones on you and then I'd ask the questions and see what kind of responses we got. Right. And then it wouldn't be my brain necessarily controlling those rods through you or whatever. So very cool ideas. Want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to thank Nancy Doy for your very generous one-time donation. And welcome into the cemetery, Allison Krasinski. You are going to be moved into a chest tomb. Thank you so much for helping with the show, guys. Sweet dreams. I can tinkle on the piano a little bit, do the Jaws theme. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have put it that way, huh? (laughs) I can tinkle on the piano. I'm so proud. You're a talented tinkler. (laughs) Just how old are we? (laughs) I need some, either I need some Depends or I'm a little kid. The Devil's Interval or Devil's Chord was introduced at this time and it was considered so (laughs) diabolical. And it was considered so blah, 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 blah. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> John Sloboda, professor of music psychology at London's Guidel Guildhall. Guidel. Guidel? Guidel D and Guidel Do. Guidel. How do I get Guidel from Guildhall? Guidel D. Jeez. You've been out gardening all day. I guess. In too much heat. sun. <laughs> Beethoven has it in his piano. Piano? 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 (laughs) Throwing some accents in there. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. Beethoven has it in his piano. Piano? I did it again. (laughs) At least it's not just me doing stuff like that. I guess not. Piano. It's a piano. (laughs) The dog farted. Oh, no. (laughs) She's a little scared. she's right below me. (laughs) She's a little scared. We're having a thunderstorm. She's a little nervous. Her thunder coat might be on a tad too tight. And <laughs> squeezed it, it right out of her. <laughs> Breathe deep. Breathe deep. Rather not, thanks. When I worked at local radio station KFMT. KFMT? KFMT. <laughs> when I worked at KFMT. Sweet tea, did you drink some sweet tea? I had some sweet tea and I'd put a little bit of country records on. we play them for everybody. I don't even know. <laughs> and Abby, this is definitely not a, this is not a country station because he's going to be talking about playing Britney Spears. But here we go. I believe at that point I shouted out an expletive. 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 <laughs> expletive. <laughs> expletive. Uh, freaking fracking expletive. <laughs> 
I believe at that point I shouted out an explet <laughs> <laughs> an explosive word. I believe at that point I shouted out an expletive. Oh my gosh. <laughs> expletive. I believe at that point I shouted out an expletive. As music moved out of the 19... 19- <laughs> going through puberty. Lights would act weird and strange no- noses. Strange noses would be heard. We don't want to know what they were doing. <laughs> That's Kelly playing he hit her your nose. nose. <laughs> the nose harp or whatever it's called. Oh you don't have a harp though. You're just I need playing blow my your nose. nose. <laughs> Music speaks to our very souls. It can bring back a tender memory. Baby, baby. Memory? Memory? A tender memory? Uh-oh. Oh my lord. Oh my. <laughs> oh, she's having a dream. I should put. These are the sounds of little Mia having a bit of a dream. (laughs) While we're recording. She's so precious. (laughs) Even when she does pass gas. I was going to say, so she farts and has nightmares. She's growling a little bit. She's growling. And her eyes are all rolled back in her head. Great. Just like I sleep. (laughs) 